I'd like to thank Christopher Holpe with Wealth Advisors Trust for coming to join me live on the podcast today. Christopher, thanks for coming to Austin. Kevin, I'm always happy, even when it's raining or sunshine. Austin's always cool. Well, it, that it is, and we're happy to have the rain for sure. So before we uh, jump into the details of what you do with Wealth, Wealth Advisors Trust, just give the audience a little background about you and how you got started in the industry, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the evolution of trusts and how you ended up where you are today. You know, it's kind of a funny story. You've got five guys. Well, first of all, Wealth Advisors Trust Company actually stands for what is a trust company. And (laughs) we started, so we all came out of Ernst & Young's uh, family office group in Dallas, except for one guy. He he was a former uh, chief actuary for Penn Mutual, Mm. and he truly didn't know what a trust company was. So we actually started because we didn't even like trust companies. We didn't even like corporate trustees. Actually, we didn't even like family trustees. Some of us didn't even like trusts. But what we really said to ourselves was, it's a necessary evil. Sort of like brushing our teeth in the morning. You just have to do it because nobody likes to go to the dentist. So what we said to ourselves was, and it wasn't my idea. It was one of my partners, Chuck Sharp. He's um, an estate attorney. And he goes, Holtby, most people call me by my last name. Oh, okay. They go, Holtby, you know, we should start a trust company that advisors would love to use. I'm like, no, 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 no. Nobody wants to work with a trust company. (laughs) They're horrible. They're slow. You know, everyone always says no. And he goes, no, dude. He called me dude. There are these states where you can be a trust company and you don't have to manage money and you don't even have to custody the money, you know, where all the stocks and bonds are held, right? That's done by Schwab or Pershing or Fidelity. So I said, "Uh, whatever. Anyway, six months later, I came back to Chuck, and I'm like, hey, I found the state. I found the people. Now we just need to go raise the money. He goes, really? I was kind of kidding. <laughs> so this whole concept of this trust company started because we wanted to disrupt the 700-year-old industry. It, yeah. it started in the 13th century. And we wanted to give advisors white love that they give to their clients, but they've never really had in trustee services because trustees love not to get fired. So the first rule of thumb, and I beg all of you listening, read your documents tonight, your wills and your trusts, and make sure there's two words in there, removal and appointment. A lot of attorneys, and you know who you are, only put resignation and appointment. Mm. Nay, nay. Removal and appointment. If trustees know they can be removed, they will work just a little bit harder. That makes sense. That's the most important thing I can... If you get anything else out of this, remember that. That makes a lot of sense. So... We ended up in South Dakota, which is a separate story, um, but that's why we exist. We just want to give people a better product, a better experience, an elegant experience. So that's why we exist. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, trust law is common law? Mostly, yes. Mostly I mean, it's, it, it's based upon uh, precedent, which is how the U.S. legal system means. And what precedent law means that when I am trying to prove something or make a decision on something, it's based upon some other legal case that has been proved through our various levels of our judicial system, whether it's the appellate court, the district courts, or the federal court, or ultimately the US Supreme Court. Um, And some of this came over from uh, the founding fathers and copying from uh, England, so yes. Gotcha, so 700 years of trust law Give us the evolution a little bit on the front end of that 700, but more interested to hear 
how South Dakota came about in this process and then how that is affecting, you know, every other state's trust law, uh, mainly because prior to starting Cenocera Capital, I spent time at a trust company and I saw many of the hoops that had to be jumped through over different state jurisdictions. So I'm curious what that evolution looks like and how you ended up where you are today with South Dakota as the choice. So we actually have to go back to the Roman Empire. Oh, wow. So the Roman Empire kind of liked people controlling their stuff. And their stuff was really land and people. So what the Romans created was testamentary trusts, which we know trusts that get created in a will when we die. So it really allowed people or families to stay in control of their stuff over centuries. So with the end of the Roman Empire, like 454-ish, the rule of law dissipated. I mean, it evaporated. There was no more really rule of law. Even canon law didn't start cooking until about the 7th century AD. So we get to Magna Carta in 1215, where common people could own property again. And then we have the Crusades. Now, in the Second Crusades, we had English people coming back, and they brought a type of law from Islamic law that created a structure that could be controlled during someone's lifetime. And that is called a revocable trust. So revocable trusts were partially created from Islamic law during the Crusades. So by the time the Third Crusades happened, these trusts were created in revocable trusts. And some of the people came home and they realized who they chose as a family trustee, they really didn't do what they were supposed to do. From a fiduciary, remember, there was no legal laws about trusts. And so what happened after the, in around the 13th century is you had fiduciary laws being created on how everyone is supposed to act. And that has rolled through to where we are today. The founding fathers um, obviously inherited a lot of those laws, but here's, here's kind of the cool part. We got 13 colonies all, you know, positioning for their stuff and power grabs and that sort of thing. Well, the one thing they wanted was to control property taxes naturally. Well, trusts owned property. So the 13 colonies had 13 separate property laws when we became a union. And by and then we had 13 different trust laws. So I think we're the only country in the world that has 50 different trust laws by state, which is insanely cool and crazy maddening, right? Because if you're an individual listening to this, you go like, well, which state should I use? Do I use Texas or Illinois? Don't do that. Um, yeah. Delaware, South Dakota. So what happened in the early 80s, Governor Janklow was working with Citibank around some financial uh, businesses that Citibank wanted to bring over to South Dakota. And Janklow goes, you know, I know you guys have trust laws in Delaware. We'd like to do that business. And Citi goes, well, yeah, okay, but you guys are a bunch of farmers and hicks. What, what are you going to bring to the table? And Janklow goes, I'm going to bring the best and brightest on tax legal, regulatory, and trust. And we're going to create a governor's trust task force. And every year, they're going to create ideas to give to the state legislators. So it's always cutting edge. And that is why South Dakota is such a great place for trust laws, because you have this governor's appointed trust task force that's working in conjunction with the state legislators. So the two most important revenue sources for South Dakota is farming and finance. And trust companies are insanely important up there. So there's the history from the Roman Empire 
to good old school Midwestern South Dakota. Well, that's a lot of history in just a few minutes. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs> I appreciate that. So we heard a little bit about you and Chuck Sharp and the concept of South Dakota. Give us maybe four or five of the top reasons why someone would choose a South Dakota trust jurisdiction over, say, a Texas trust jurisdiction. So if you're in Texas, it's not because Texas has a dynastic rule for 300 years and South Dakota has infinity. Because for us humans, there's literally no common sense difference between 300 years and infinity. However, South Dakota has a privacy feature, mm. which means that if you go to court and you modify a trust or decant a trust, it is sealed private forever in the Constitution of South Dakota. This is really important. So ex-spouses, journalists, Snoopy Snoopies, in the world of social media, we know all about that. So if families like to keep things on the down low, then privacy is pretty high up there. I think the other thing is South Dakota has what's called a quiet trust mm -hmm. or a silent trust feature, which means let's say you have a, a son or a daughter or a granddaughter and they're going to inherit 40 million. Be like, I don't want to create another trust fund kid. So what you can do is give them 5 million in a trust where they're a beneficiary and they get that when you may pass away or at some certain age. But there's another 25 million that even as an adult, they know nothing about until the trust says distributions begin at age 40. They don't even get it. They just get the distributions. And we know by certain ages, we are who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's another huge feature is the silent trust feature. I think another one obviously is no state income tax, asset protection. So there's a little feature that's kind of wonky and geeky. It's called the third restatement of trust law. Hmm. And the reason why this is so important, and Texas doesn't have it, is that it separates the ownership of beneficiaries from the trust assets. Because you guys have to remember, a trust is a thing. It's a legal entity. It has its own rights. It has its own responsibilities. It can be sued. So when you have that separation, it creates more asset protection for the beneficiaries. Now, I think the best asset protection is life insurance. Mm -hmm. We don't sell life insurance. Ask Ken Lay's family. They would definitely agree with that. You know, the Enron guy. But so asset protection, huge, huge, huge. Um, I think the other, some of the other features are the flexibility of decanting or modifying a trust. Yeah. We all start with preparing what we think is going to be the best estate plan that we can really consider at the time that we have it. But situations change, societies change, things adapt. So South Dakota has the number one decanting trust laws in America to change. And I've even seen beneficiaries being changed. Now, they have to sign off on it, and you got to be careful with you know, tax planning and gift tax planning and those sort of things. But I would say the decanting trust laws. So really, what makes South Dakota so unique, it's about control and choice. And they are purposely focused on keeping their trust laws cutting edge. Now, they don't get aggressive, like Nevada gets aggressive. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, Kevin, is Nevada allows alimony and child support to be protected in a divorce case for the grantor, you know, the person putting money into the trust. And South Dakota said, that's a bridge too far. That's yeah. going to end up in court, Wall Street Journal. That's a bridge too far. So they purposely said no. So yeah. even within South Dakota, there is a, an ethos, mm -hmm. a moral responsibility about pushing the envelope too far. So 
Yeah. Those are the highlights. Makes sense. Oh, and director trust laws. That's so. where I was going to go next. So, so director trust laws. Good, good. We're all on the same page. And so I, I would say, again, something that I worked with at the large company ahead of time were some directed trusts, and it, it got them into a, uh, a kerfuffle, if that's a good term to use. Great term. And uh, maybe, a, maybe a better one was the uh, fiduciary officers were quite persnickety about them, if we're going to throw some good terms out today. And so... The directed trusts and delegated trusts are something that's new to a lot of people, although it's, the law has been around for quite some time. Um, but the concept mm-hmm. of how they operate gives the family, in my opinion, more control. And someone told me one time, you know, Kevin, the three rules of real estate are location, 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 and the three rules of good trust planning are control, control, control. And so anything that puts more control uh, into the families and the decision makers tends to be smiled upon by those families. So could you give us a rundown of directed trusts and delegated trusts and how they both work? Yes. So a directed trust means that in in the trust document, it says that Kevin is going to be the investment trustee or the fiduciary on all of the investments and that the trust company, us, Wealth Advisors Trust Company, have zero fiduciary liability and oversight. So for all of you listening out there, what does that really mean? It means we're going to charge less. So this is a good thing. The reason why the big trust companies don't like directed trusts, even in Texas where directed trusts are law, is because it's hard for them to prove how they add value. So a traditional trust company looks at value as control, as a fiduciary responsibility. Yes, but what is that worth? What's the separation between cost and profit? So when we look at a directed trust, It can be split on investments and or distributions. And I would say, Kevin, 95% of families use it for investments and 5% use it for investments and distributions. We're good either way. Trust companies in South Dakota, uh, most can handle both. A delegated trust, which is literally 90% of the trusts out there, everyone, means that the trustee has the power to delegate accounting, appraisal, legal, and investment authority to someone else. So, in, you know, in this case, Kevin, here's the trick. We, because we're making a conscious fiduciary decision to delegate it to Kevin, we're still on the hook. Even though we're not choosing the investments, we're not rebalancing, we're not choosing the custodian, but because we made a fiduciary decision, the fees are literally 30% more just for that one factor. So going back to directed trust, it's all about control and choice. What's interesting most people are unhappy with corporate trustees because of trust administration mm-hmm. and the slothfulness and the lack of intellectual laziness, not always so much about the investments, but once they realize, wait, I've got choices now, I can do my own thing, I can have my own family office and run the investments my way with no oversight, yes. And so I would say directed trusts are marvelous. I mean, they're awesome. So you, you another item you touched on earlier that I wanted to talk out, we see a lot of here, especially in Austin, being very much a first generation wealth, uh, very much a wealth creator town still, is we still see a lot of appointments of individuals as trustees. And you had mentioned earlier, we don't even like the individuals as trustees. (laughs) Share with me a little bit about what are the pitfalls for those people? Because I don't want it to be, you shouldn't be a, you know, you shouldn't be a trustee because you need a corporate trustee. It should be, what do you really need to worry about? as an individual trustee, because I think that's what leads people who really stop and take an honest look at the job they're undertaking by agreeing to be a trustee and saying, that's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of liability. 
what are those responsibilities and what are those liabilities to those individual trustees? So can I go back and just go, there are four basic things every trust company does. Mm. They onboard a trust, they invest the money, they distribute the money, and they do taxes. That's it. Mm. That's all we do. Now, we don't invest the money, obviously. So any trustee does those four things, corporate or family. Now, any trustee around distributions has to interpret the trust document, follow the governing law, and make sure the grantor's intent, the person who funded the trust, is following the rules and document every single decision. And this is the key word, documentation. Because a trustee has a duty to inform, which means that they have to inform the beneficiaries of all decisions in written format in a principal and incoming income statement, which means that if you're not following all these rules and you're not being impartial or you're not asking the question why or I don't know, then you have a problem because a family trustee and a corporate trustee have the same powers, identical. Family trustees are not regulated. So you have someone who has the same power as we do, but they're not regulated. Who's holding them accountable? So here's some great ideas. If you want to choose a family trustee, awesome. Do not let them manage the money. Use a third party person to manage the money so you can, so someone else is watching money flowing out of the a trust account. So if there's money going favoring one beneficiary over another, that financial advisor can actually see that happening and raise a red flag. CPA. Make sure the CPA is also not the trustee. You want that separation of duties. If you do at least those two things, you'll be in way better shape than most other people. And to all the men listening to this, you people make horrible family trustees <laughs> because men aren't even willing to go to the doctor when they don't feel well. They're like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> so women make great family trustees because they follow the rules mm -hmm. and they're inquisitive. They're willing, they're comfortable to say, I don't know. I'm going to call up the attorney and find out how am I supposed to interpret this? So, so once again, you're confirming that women are smarter than men. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a 100%. reason why it's always called we married up. Yeah. 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 Women yeah. never say, oh, yeah, I married up. No, 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 yeah, no. It's men who always say I Correct. married up. Correct. So that's the most important thing. I see a lot of successes with family trustees working in concert with a corporate trustee. That works really well. Mm -hmm. But really what you want is do you want that family trustee working with a corporate trustee to be able to fire them? That's easy inside the documents, right? The removal appointment language we talked about. But you can also have them maybe being in charge of distributions, right? So in a director trust feature, you could have that family trustee being in charge of distributions. The corporate trustee is going to act as a guardian of answering questions and documenting the whole entire process. So that's the most important thing when you think about a family trustee versus a corporate trustee. The biggest difference is there's no regulatory oversight. Mm. So I gave you some ideas of how to sort of patch it up in a great way. Yeah. I think also along those same lines, when you have the big corporate trustee, even if it's a directed trust, is when that trustee has the investment responsibility, most states have a duty to diversify in a portfolio. And mm -hmm. I see this over and over. I've seen it in the trust world. I've seen it play out with some very wealthy families that the corporate trustee would take over there would be a wholesale change of the investment policy to match what the trust company wanted and not necessarily what the family or the grantor who had passed away wanted. And it creates a new portfolio that is 
more expensive, and it creates oftentimes an enormous tax bill for the trust. It's true. Directed trusts are a way to handle this, correct? Correct. And even what we've done to protect the investment trustee, the investment fiduciary, is we've recommended, look, why don't we just go to court, change some of the investment parameters that are inside the trust document to allow for concentrated positions, whether it's in a real estate, an operating asset. Low basis stock. Low basis stock. Absolutely. So, I mean, look, guys, this is not rocket science. Like, we're not trying to put someone on Mars here. It's pretty simple stuff. It's just you just have to be curious enough to wonder, huh, what's the best way to do this? And as long as you're inquisitive, things are really straightforward. And you're inquisitive because you want to challenge the status quo. Mm-hmm. So the best trust officers are not lawyers. Like, they just aren't. Because lawyers are trained to follow a linear, logical process using if this, then that. That's how they're trained. That's, that's why they're really good at what they do. But trust law is like this three-dimensional, multi-emotional, jurisdictional blob. Nurses paralegals make great trust officers because mm. they can handle the dynamicism of all the things that are going on law and human emotion and rules so it's funny none of our trust officers are lawyers interesting because they are not trained to think in a non-linear way mm-hmm. harvard lawyers are awesome just not as trust officers yeah because it's a non-linear world which is kind of interesting if we need lawyers great We'll go hire them. They're mercenaries. That's their purpose. And we hire them at $400 an hour, buck fifty an hour, do the work, do the research, done. That's how we use lawyers, cautiously, purposefully. Well, good. As we come to the end of our time today, are there any high-level aspects? Uh, if you could give our audience maybe two or three high-level points, say, I'm staring down the decision to either become a personal trustee myself I'm establishing a trust and considering hiring a corporate trustee. What are the, the two to three main reasons why you would seek out an independent advisor and someone like Wealth Advisors Trust Company? I would always start with, do you even need a trust? Human brains work better proving a negative than proving a positive. So literally say, why do I want a trust? As you go through those hurdles, the first step is family trustee works great. So go through making sure they're impartial, they're comfortable asking questions, and there's some oversight of control, especially investments and uh, taxes. So, you know, there's a, there's a separation of duties. Always remember you have 50 different choices of trust law. There's actually seven, Tennessee, Delaware, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nevada, Alaska. Tennessee and um, New Hampshire are superstar high school athletes. They got a ways to go. Delaware reminds me of King George III before he lost America, mm. arrogant, resting on their laurels. Wyoming is great for private trust companies. Alaska, sorry guys, you're just weird. And really the two (laughs) best are Nevada and South Dakota. You really can't go wrong. So remember, you've got choices around trust, trust law. And then I think the other thing is ask yourself, what do you want the trustee to do? And the first demarcation line is, do I want them to manage money or not? Like once you understand that, then you go, why do they exist? Not what they do, Because remember, we all do the same thing. Onboarding, taxes, distribution, investments. What we do is identical. It's a commodity. Why we do it. Going back to how we started this trust company, that tells you how they think. It tells you how they're motivated. It tells you how they train. And it tells you how they hire. And that's the stuff that no marketing person can gloss over. That's good old-fashioned, far Midwestern. You can't make it up. So that's how I would approach that question. Perfect. 
Well, Christopher, thanks again for coming in and joining me in person today. It's always great to have live guests on the podcast rather than uh, over Zoom, which we seem to have lived on for the last three and a half years. But thank you for being here. Thank you for doing what you do for us and for our families. Oh, you bet. Anytime. Thanks so much, Kevin. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.